The World Economic Forum has opened up applications for its 2023 Technology Pioneers community. This is a special group of innovators and entrepreneurs, and only those with the most cutting-edge solutions are invited to join. The forum serves as a platform for these pioneers to collaborate and push forward new innovations that can change the world. The 2023 application form is available right now at the top of weforum.org, but due by January 31st. Make sure you apply and spread the word. From the World Economic Forum, I'm Beatrice DiCaro, and this is the Book Club Podcast. In this episode, we're talking to Dr. Dambisa Moyo, a Zambian-born global economist, co-principal of Versaca Investments, and a New York Times best-selling author with five books under her belt. Her latest book, How Boards Work and How They Can Work Better in a Chaotic World, examines the traditional role of boards and suggests how they can adapt to the needs of a 21st century marketplace. She credits her early years in Zambia for giving a springboard to the world of global economics. She now holds a doctorate in economics from Oxford, a master's from Harvard, and serves on a number of boards herself, including the 3M Corporation, Chevron, Condé Nast, and the Oxford University Endowment Investment Committee. Dambisa is a prolific writer who has been published in the Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and the Harvard Business Review. My colleague Julie Masiga interviewed her and started by asking Dambisa what led her down the path of book writing. You know, in a way, it's kind of accidental. I think people who I went to, you know, high school with in Zambia, I think are, they're like me, still quite shocked that I've actually built up a career as, a, as an author because I was not a great writer. But I think really what was catalytic for me is realizing that being an author has given me a space to share ideas and really to make arguments without getting caught in sort of a lot of, you know, here and now, it's very often you can be on a video call for five minutes, you're not able to really get through to the nuance of many arguments and why certain things might work and why they might not. And I think that for me, being able to sit down and write a book that's 300 pages gives me the opportunity to really analyze different angles and to really offer my perspective without getting shouted down as uh, can often happen in, a, in the social media world in which we live. So for me, it's an accidental career, an opportunity. I've been very uh, lucky in, in terms of the success I've had around it. But at the same time, it's been in many ways life-changing for me to have that uh, opportunity. Brilliant. And when you come up with these ideas for your books, what's your writing process? So, you know, for me, what has been very helpful is I read a lot. I read a lot. And there's not much that I won't read. Meaning, I think too often people approach a book with their ideas baked and they, and that's and it works. You know, people are quite ideological, as I said. And to me, ideology is very much the enemy of growth. We need to be less ideological about many things because it's proven time and time again that very often we're wrong about how society actually works. And so when I think about how I come up with ideas, it's just I read widely. I'm not saying I don't have strong views on certain things. I do. But I try very hard to think about, wait a second, I think this, and of course I'm tainted by where I was raised and what PhD I did. I didn't go to do a PhD at the Tsinghua in China. I did my PhD at Oxford. So obviously my lens for how I think about the world 
uh, is very much shaped by the background that I have. Similarly, having been at Harvard or worked at Goldman, etc., my worldview is shaped by the experiences that I've had. But I try very hard to make friends and read this, you know, South China Morning Post. I try to visit other countries, listen to what other people are saying. I don't need to go to other countries. Very often living, especially now in the West, which is so fractured, people are either, you know, one way or the other. I try desperately to hear other people's arguments. And I think very often you'll find that people aren't dumb and they, they have their reasons. And so for me, before I rush out to write the next book, I try very hard to think about counter views, people who are against growth. Why are they against growth? Why is it not obvious that growth is a good thing? And I try to really adapt and understand their perspective. Yeah, but from a sitting down and writing perspective and the sense of the actual nitty gritty for all those writers who are halfway through their novels, what do you do when you put on your computer, open a blank page and there's just nothing in your head? Okay, so first of all, I bow down people who write fiction that is a whole different kettle of fish. That's for Nobel Prize winner type type of thing. Because I think building characters, imagining something that doesn't exist, and you know, yes, you can draw on your family experiences, etc. But being able to write a book that is fiction is, I think, one of the hardest things to do. I am not in that field. I am a nonfiction writer. So every day I wake up, there's an economic crisis, oil prices that at price Y and interest rates have moved or foreign exchange. That's where I derive my, my information and my sort of information set. But still, how do I think about writing? And I would say there's one thing that I've learned to do over the process of 10 years of writing books and having some, some success at it, which is more and more, I think about what is the 30 minute speech or 15 minute speech I would be giving on this topic if I had, I don't know, students, professors, policymakers, presidents in a room. What am what I only have 15 minutes to make my argument. What is the argument and what are the three or five supporting points? That's how I think about my idea gaining sort of traction and and sort of moving on from there so that's how i i do it and it look i didn't i didn't start out writing like this my first book was very tortuous to write but over time i'm not saying it's easy writing a book but it's definitely from my way of approaching a book and how the chapters fall out of what i think is the big message of any book is very much thinking about well when i have to do a 30 minute speech or 15 minute speech to an, an audience I want to, to be interested, students or whomever, what is it that I'm going to say? I have 15 minutes, so what am I gonna say? So I work from the back as opposed to starting off from a blank page. So to your benefit as a nonfiction author is that the events are already there. Things are happening in the world, in the economic sector. So what you do is like weave your own ideas and perspectives into established fact. Let's put it like that. Yeah, well, I mean, the way I would think about it is a lot of the variables, GDP and inflation numbers and foreign exchange, etc., are they're, they're exactly that. They're outcome variables. They're not exactly telling us they're telling us where the price of something is at a particular moment. They're not telling us about underlying trends. You know, they're not telling us about social 
change or economic change that might be you know, underpinning the movements. So again, if you think about tactics versus structure, there's a lot of the noise, it's a lot of moving data points, that's more tactics here and now, but what about the structural changes that are occurring? You know, I'll give you a specific example. According to the United Nations, India is going to be the largest economy by population this November. If you are not paying attention and you're looking at data, you might miss that, but that's a very big deal for how the world will evolve, how we'll address inequality, how we'll address climate change. It's a big deal that India is going to be the biggest population in the world. It's surpassing China. But so that's a structural change. So I think there's a narrative, a structural narrative that, that I focus on in my career as being as being a sort of storytelling so that people don't just get excited about what's happening in the market at this moment, but really trying to understand what are the big changes that are occurring that are going to influence the world going forward. I know you've written many books yourself, but what's one book you'd recommend other than the ones you've written? Yeah, you know, I get asked this question a lot. I think for me, it would, in just in terms of the, the things that I'm interested in, which is ultimately about human progress, I think I'd have to go back to 1776, Adam Smith, the, the Wealth of Nations. I still think it's really, it was fresh thinking in terms of that enlightenment period and thinking about how to look and evaluate economics and economic structures. But I think more importantly, it was also really a, 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 an amazing sort of leap forward in thinking about why some countries, some nations succeed and others might not. So for me, that would, to this day, you know, almost 300 years later, you know, centuries later, it's, it's the place I would go to. Do you think it still rings true in terms of all the tenets or does it need updating? Is it, is it a classic piece of literature? Let's call it that. I think it's, it's baseline. I mean, of course, there are other dynamics. I mean, if you think about 1776, socially, how we interacted, but the economics was a completely different place. You didn't have the sort of global system of finance and sort of multilateralism that has subsequently come to dominate. So I think, of course, there are sort of aspects to, to what Adam Smith posited. But I think fundamentally, when we look back and strip away a lot of public policy and a lot of human-made institutions and policy tools, I think, you know, really looking at the basics of so capital, labor, so capital, including things like land, but labor, the, the youth of your population, the sort of talent education of your, your population, and then this wild card of total factor productivity, these other factors that are supposed to be catalytic in driving capital and labor. I still think the baseline of, of that classic and thinking about a long-term success of a country and a nation, I think still hold true. You've written five books. Which one of them has been the most significant for you personally and professionally? So I think in terms of just giving me the opportunity to, to be more of an author, and to be more engaged in issues that I'm interested in. It was certainly Dead Aid. That was definitely catalytic, my first book. Look, I think in many respects, it was very fortuitous that, you know, the book happened to come out at a time when people were just very critical and reevaluating many other things. They were looking, it was 2008 into 2009, looked at the financial crisis. There were questions about the systems globally. What about this growth? what's going on with the world. And I just happened to be 
publishing my book in January 2009, which was also questioning something that was viewed very much as a sacred cow. So that was very, you know, I, I, I would love to take this, to take credit for, you know, predicting or being designing the timing it wasn't like that. It was very fortuitous that, and I think the question of aid and how we, we actually engage with poorer countries, I think was just another thing that was, that raised questions that that really did catalyze my career as a board member, because a lot of companies in particular interested in solving these problems of inequity and underdevelopment, but they have a different approach than just handing out aid, for example. So that, that would definitely be, I think, that in terms of a shift from an equilibrium, I was going along happily in one way and then jumped up in a different way. That would definitely be that book. What are some of the things that have surprised you in your research for your books? I think for me, the biggest shock, maybe two. One is for sure that the price of the barrel of oil is only $100. And I say that because when I, you know, partly for my board work, but also just being able to travel, when you see how much effort goes into bringing a barrel of oil up from the waterbed or from digging a well somewhere, the costs that go in, the technology, the risks of fatalities, I'm shocked that it's just $100, the cost of cleanup, et cetera. So that to me is, is shocking, but it's true for many other things. I used to be on the board of a, of a company that among other things made beer. And I, I always found it interesting that you can go to a bar in New York and say, hey, can I have a cerveza, you know, a, a, a beer from Mexico? And it would be no more than $5. And $5 for a beer, which has come all the way from Mexico, they had to be produced. Somebody drove a truck over the border. There were all these infrastructure costs and it was still only five bucks. I think there are so many of these types of things. The fact that you and I can be on this call, we're having a call right now. It's costing pennies. How is that possible? It's, it should be super expensive for me to call my mother. But now I call her shamelessly all the time <laughs> because it's basically free. I'm like, how is it possible that it's free? So I think these types of things continue to just amaze me that, wow, you can get something, you know, across the world for what, what is pennies on the dollar uh, at high quality, high and reliable quality. Okay. And with this latest one, why do you think it's important to talk about boards now? Oh, I wrote it during the pandemic. And I think one of the a couple of things. One is that it's not written only for corporations. Really, it's supposed to be a roadmap for any type of board, a board for supporting a government, as I do on the, for the trade and investment department for the UK but also for boards of NGOs and endowments, as I also am involved in. And why, why was it important? It was important because certainly for corporations, there was a backlash around, and there has been, you know, what's the role of the corporation? You know, what is the motivation? And, you know, you will be aware, I'm sure, that in 2019, companies themselves through the business roundtable changed what their utility function is and what their role of the company is. So that was already underpinning. And I wanted people to better understand 
what the constraints of decision leaders is. Why is it that companies don't just hand out cash? What, what is going on in the boardroom? What are they guided by? And you know, I talked about those three areas, strategy, succession, particularly the CEO, but also issues around ESNG, as we called it back then. It's obviously changing its name. But I think that's why I was motivated to write the book. I think it was very important for us, and it continues to be very important for us to understand that if we really are serious about addressing the problems that the world faces, climate, inequality, growth declines, geopolitics, etc., we need everybody at the table. We cannot start saying, well, we don't want corporations there or we don't want government there, or we don't want NGOs. Everybody, this is so serious. Everything is so serious now. We need all hands on deck. But many of these organizations have constraints, but I think it's really important for people to understand what these businesses are coming with, the boards are coming with in terms of their contributions and how that was going to play a big role for society. So that's why I was motivated to write the book. So I'm curious to know, as a, as a Black African woman inhabiting spaces that are typically not very diverse, what has been your experience? How have you handled it? How have you changed or adapted or not to follow through with your own plans, visions, dreams? Yeah. So look, I think the good news is that, you know, the world has moved quite quickly on these issues. I think that that, you know, certainly 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when I joined my first corporate board, I was a bit of a novelty, a black woman from Africa. But the good news now is that that it's just it's it, it looks bizarre when you see any form of an institution, public policy, business, not for profit that is not reflective of society, which in other words means more diverse. And I think that that's a great thing because we need that talent from everywhere. What I think has changed is that the bar is higher for everybody. You know, I I kind of joke that, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I had a PhD and two masters. I'd already done my PhD at Oxford. I'd done my masters at Harvard and I had worked at Goldman Sachs for nearly 10 years. That you know, at that time, it was still, people would still package me being on a board as, oh, it's because she's a black woman. That That is kind of becoming less relevant now because there are plenty of people who look like women, men, young people, people from different backgrounds, you know, racially, not just black, but Latinos, Asians, who are eminently talented and qualified to contribute to solving the biggest issues that the world is facing. And so if anything, I think it's great that the bar is higher now and that more and more the questions of race and gender and origin are becoming, to my mind, less important. We're looking for talent and the fact that the talent can be can in, is inhabiting somebody who comes from Africa or from Asia is becoming an it's an important contribution, but it's not the only reason people are being selected into into roles of you know important decision making. And I think that's a great thing for the world. That's interesting. I recently read an article that suggested that there might be a backlash against the diversity, equity, and inclusion. So do you think that there might be a backlash? I don't believe that there's a backlash, to be honest. I mean, I think companies are trying to compete in a very aggressive world. We're now in a time of high inflation. We're in a time of geopolitics being very aggressive. When I sit in boardrooms, both for corporations, but also public policy rooms, people are trying to solve complex problems. The best way to solve complex problems is to have all the best ideas, the most hardworking, innovative, you know, ideas and people around the table. And I think this notion that 
the most innovative and hardworking people only look in a particular way. It's, it's very old school. Um, people need to understand what's going on in China, in India, in Africa, in South America. Um, I'm doing some stuff with the Commonwealth in Britain. We need to understand what's happening across the Commonwealth, over 50 countries. The notion that you know, 12 white men of a certain age are going to understand these aspects, I think is very passe. And I don't know any room where that would be acceptable now for, for purely utilitarian reasons. It's not because they're doing anybody any favors. It's because we these companies want to succeed. Governments want to compete. They want to be successful. And so I don't think anybody's doing anyone any favors. I think we're just in a world where people realize that if you want to be a sports team and compete, you need the best people, the best you know footballer, best defender, the best shot taker. Um, and it doesn't matter whether they're white or black, you know, or a male or female, you want the best team. And so that's what people are looking for. And and I look, I'm not saying at all that we've reached nirvana. We've got a lot of work to do. But the attitude of decision makers is a better recognition and a, more of an acceptance and understanding that the diversity is going to come from everywhere and that we need to be very aggressive in how we get out there to recruit talent and make sure that all voices are, are being heard. And this is an existential crisis for how we solve any multitude of issues, growth or inequality or climate change. We need the best people. The, you know, Climate change at its heart is a science problem. We need the best scientists. We need the best minds to help us think about how to generate energy and to solve things and make sure that we don't destroy the planet, for example. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm much more sanguine about where the world is today. I generally am a glass half full person, which means I'm always looking for solutions and way forward. I'm not really interested in sort of a woe is me type of thing. I mean, for sure that we have a history, well-documented history of people who look like me being discriminated against, but I think it would be a missed opportunity for younger people who happen to look like me to, to think that the world hasn't changed or that things are not potentially getting better. I think that they, on balance, are getting better. There's a lot of work to be done. A lot of work has been done. You know, I'll give you one quick example. When I joined my, my boards, first joined corporate boards, I was the only black person, only woman. That would be, you know, it, even on the boards I serve on now, some of the boards, half of the board is women. You know, it's dominated by people from different backgrounds. And that is what it's going to take for us to compete globally. Um, and it's not just true for corporations. It's true for NGOs. It's true for government. It's true for endowments at Oxford Endowment. If you want to compete and to win, then you better reflect society, the stakeholders, investors, regulators. And that's that's just good business sense. It's not sort of some big, shouldn't be some big cryptic sense surprise. It should be obvious. And it took us a long time to get here, but I think the momentum is only in one direction to continue in this, in this path. So I'm aware you were born in Zambia and you've come a long way since then. If you don't mind just sharing with our, our listeners your journey from Zambia to here and then explaining how you've changed as a leader. Yeah, look, I mean, I was born and raised in Zambia. My formative years, definitely in Africa, and I'm grateful for that. It helped, you know, now that I've lived in in when in many countries, I've traveled to over 80 countries, developed and developing, democratic and non-democratic. I realized that I was very lucky because I grew up in a country that wasn't quite ideological. 
about the way the world should be. Um, if you spend time in the United States, for example, Americans are raised on, on sort of a great dose that the most important thing is liberal democracy and market capitalism and essentially everything else is wrong. And I suppose if you were raised in, in China, you would believe in state capitalism and deprioritizing democracy and that everything else is wrong. And in a way, you know, growing up in, in Zambia at the time that I did um, was uh, very fortuitous because we weren't really indoctrinated one way or another. In fact, we were a non-aligned state back at the time I was growing up. So I, I feel very fortunate because I feel like I'm able to assess and maybe be quite inquisitive about the issues that I'm interested in, public policy, politics, geopolitics, economics, what works and what doesn't with growth and inequality and some of the big issues that the world continues to face without the burden of feeling or that there's some constraints into what is right and what is wrong. I'm very open-minded, I think, in terms of, of how we approach these big issues facing the world, whether it's climate change or inequality or growth or, or debt. So I think that's been great. You asked me, how do I approach uh, you know, leadership or how I think about things? I think really one of the big lessons that I have, I'm still... I'm still very much a novice and I'm, I'm learning, trying to learn more and more about this is this idea of mixed mental models. So I think that one of the problems with education is that not only are we taught to be quite ideological, as I just intimated, but I think also we're very quick to pick subjects. So my PhD is in economics. The way I look at the world, the price of oil, the price of a loaf of bread is very much influenced by economics. And I think this whole field of mixed mental models of which Charlie Munger is a big sort of leader in the thinking, really, it challenges us to look at the same problem from different angles. So instead of looking at the recent COVID-19 pandemic, only in the lens of it being a healthcare challenge, I think it would have been beneficial to look at it as a geopolitical issue, as an economic issue, anthropological issue, sociological issue, as we've now come to realize it had many, many knock-on effects. But I think we were not very, very good in general at addressing everything from climate change to issues of progress and growth, in looking at these issues from different lenses. And so for me, that's where I, I spend a lot of my time, and that's what I find quite interesting. Absolutely. On a completely different note, <laughs> what's the best advice you've ever been given? Best advice? Gosh, there's lots of advice. I think, you know, the best advice is that no one is coming to help you. <laughs> as negative as that sounds, I think very often we can, it's very easy to sit in your room at home, or as I have done, and to say, well, why has nobody telephoned me to tell me that this board opportunity is available or that I should apply to do my PhD at Oxford or whatever? And it's very easy to go down a road where you start creating negative narratives. Again, just to be clear, because I know we live in a world where people take one little soundbite and misinterpret. I am not saying that they're not racists and misogynists out there. What I am saying is that rather than assuming that the world is against us and things are negative, I always try to find a path towards achieving my goals and trying to solve problems as opposed to problem identification. So it goes back to the piece of advice that not everybody's trying to get you, not everybody is, hates you. And I think that the more that we can think about the fact that we are probably the most interested in our lives and our careers more than anybody else's, I think the faster we are to 
to finding ways to try and solve the things that are are big in the macro sense in the world, but also the things that are on a smaller way interesting and the goals to me as an individual. Uh, I'm not saying that doors haven't been slammed in my face and that people are always helpful. No, they're not. But I think I think for me, it's really that understanding that I have to lean in. I need to create a body of evidence that I I that I am equipped to be in these rooms and that I do have something to offer and that no one is going to sort of call me or send me an engraved invitation just because they think Dambisa might be nice or she's a black woman or she's from Africa. Nobody in the decision-making role who wants to really solve these problems over the long term is going to offer opportunities, you know, without there some being some expectation that uh, that we take initiative for our careers and lean in to try and address these issues. Yeah, and some women say that you knock on many doors and then some get slammed in your face and some women say, go ahead and break the door down. So my question would be, like, when the door is slammed in your face, what's your strategy? How do you get into those rooms? Like, practically speaking, if you are advising a younger woman, what's, what do you do? What steps do you take? How do you equip yourself? The door gets slammed in my face all the time. And what that means is I just have to try and get more information about why I'm not getting certain opportunities. How can I be better equipped so that I can compete? But it's it's a much better approach, I think, than for me to say, well, I've done all this stuff. The world must be against me because I've gotten this far because a lot of people, not just people who look like me, a lot of people who don't look like me have actually taken a flyer and have invested and given me opportunities. Make sure that you're equipping your yourself, the tools in your toolkit match what it is these organizations are looking for. As an example, we need to to invest in our own careers. We need to lean in, to use Sheryl Sandberg's term, to really understand what organizations are looking for. And, and And even then, that's not a guarantee that you're definitely not going to get opportunities. But I think that that's where, you know, getting critical feedback. We all think we're great, but, you know, maybe very often we might be sending off a signal that, that we don't want to get critical feedback, but actually we do need feedback. We need the feedback that will say, hey, Dambisa, you're great at X, Y, and Z, but you're not very good at these other things with, I like to call them my personal board of directors, my friends, my family, asking them honestly, what am I good at? What am I not good at? Asking your boss honestly means giving people the space to be able to give you critical feedback without them thinking you're going to sue them or you're going to accuse them of racism and I think, or whatever that list of things might be. So for me, I think, you know, for young people, that's my count. That's what's worked for me. So I think again, really burrowing into understanding, burrowing and understanding what organizations are looking for and understanding what you bring to the table and where that matches, I think is really important. And if you find that you are not eligible no doesn't mean never. It means not now. Okay, so I'll just circle right back to the beginning, speaking about you as a Black African woman. And why is it so important to have that female perspective? or And, and more than that, uh, a person of color who's also a woman on a board. Like what unique perspectives do they bring and how do they enrich the whole board experience? Yeah, look, I think it, it is about perspective. It's about approach. I mean, it is it is clear as far, I mean, certainly in my generation, I don't want to talk about other generations. I can speak about the generation in which I grew up. Girls 
and boys were taught quite differently and how we show up in different environments is quite different. I mean, thankfully, that's changing in, in many around the world, what opportunities women can have. And I think there's a lot to be said about the fact that we, if you look around the world, we've had not only women political leaders, but you know, you've had across Asia, even Africa has had three female presidents, but we in business as well. We've seen, you know, the the CEOs of, of of automobile companies, of finance companies, one that you know, a bank, Bank of America, CEOs of mining companies. We've we've got CEOs of energy companies, women, and I think that there's a, a perspective there that is quite important. It it doesn't mean that they're not doing all the other things that we'd expect from any leader, but there is something additive around their own experiences about how women compete how women progress. So I think more and more, as I said earlier, I think those issues will will dissipate as being barriers because I think people recognize in a 21st century company, we want the best talent at the table. In terms of race and origin, so I think, uh, as I said, I'm very optimistic. I'm very sanguine that these type of changes are already uh, afoot, but I, there's always, always much more to be done, always. That was author Dambisa Moyo speaking to Julie Masiga. Big thanks for joining us on the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast and best of all, leave us a review. Don't forget to join our book club on Facebook, which is coming up on 200,000 followers. And to discuss podcasts, please join the podcast club, also on Facebook. And of course, please search out our sister podcasts, Radio Davos and Meet the Leader, wherever you can get your podcasts. This episode of the Book Club podcast was presented by my colleague Julie Masiga and myself, Beatrice DiCaro. Production was with Gareth Nolan, and big thanks to our podcast editor, Robin Pomeroy. We'll be back soon, but for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.